What roles are there in peacebuilding? What impact have women had in the peace process in Iraq? And what role do women play in the shaping of the Iraqi political agenda today? Dr. Jasmine Chilmaran is a research fellow here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs Middle East and North Africa program. Her research interests are women's civil society, women's participation in peacebuilding, and the function of international gender frameworks in post-conflict settings, which includes the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Her PhD thesis focused on what we are about to discuss today. My name is Ylva Pettersson and I also work here at the Institute and I would like to welcome you all to today's discussion. All right, Jasmine, first of all, what roles are there in peacebuilding? Well, there are many roles in peacebuilding. Uh, it depends on where in the process of building peace we're at. Uh, you know, the move from uh, a conflict situation or a war situation to what we would think of as peacetime is really complicated and there are many different steps in that process. So we can think as a result of many different roles for all of the people and all of the actors and institutions that are involved. Uh, if we're thinking maybe uh, what would come to mind as a the most obvious thing uh, in terms of building peace, it would probably be something like a peace process, a, a negotiation to get to um, maybe a peace agreement or a document that outlines what peace will look like after conflict has ended. Then we can think of some very concrete uh, examples of uh, roles in the peace process or the negotiation process. So that could be, you know, negotiators for the different parties and traditionally those might have been the warring parties but we're seeing uh, the, the people that are involved in peace processes expand over time as well that's something that uh, we've seen happen in the last uh, couple of decades actually uh, there might be mediators and sweden i think is a great example of having trained uh, some some wonderful mediators that take part in peace, peace processes and negotiations. Uh, you might also see uh, less formal actors take part. So people who are in civil society organizations, maybe they wouldn't be inside the room where the negotiation is happening, uh, but they definitely are in the periphery or the outside spaces, uh, making contributions, taking notes of what's happening, trying to challenge some of the language that's happening inside the negotiation. Uh, I also want to encourage people to think about uh, more widely about who takes part in, in these sorts of negotiations. Remember that, yes, there are people negotiating, but there's also things like, uh, you know, translation services that need to take part or uh, people facilitating the very processes, people who support the logistics. Uh, an example very recently discussed uh, in the Afghanistan negotiations as well was that they had doctors come in to discuss some of the uh, practicalities around, you know, the fact that these negotiations are happening during a global pandemic. So you can see that there's many different roles that can, that can take part in that peace process, that negotiation, but also afterwards as we think about, you know, a peace agreement has finished, maybe there's uh, a new constitution being written, there's elections that have to be organized, uh, many other things as well. So there's lots of different roles that uh, people can take part in as we move from conflict to peacetime. And what particular roles have women played or can women play in these processes? 
So the first question we can ask is what role do women already play in building peace in the many different contexts that you can look at? But the second question is also what role can be further developed? So what can we advocate for women to do more of in peace processes? So maybe we can look at um, a peace process that had no women's participation, no women in the room, and ask questions about why that was, how can we change some of what's going on to ensure that women do have access to that conversation and uh, the physical space where the conversation is being held. But the other thing that I think is really important is to also expand how we understand what we mean by uh, a peace agreement or a peace process or peace building, because that also helps us to see some of the invisible ways that women are already involved in playing a big part in, in whatever is going on, whatever it is that we're looking at. Um, so, you know, one example uh, maybe from the Colombia case recently is one where we were seeing women civil society groups at a very small scale negotiate uh, you know, access, so you know, small ceasefires between uh, different warring parties to ensure that they can access uh, things like you know, different roads or movements between communities and things like that. So when you start to zoom out a little bit from a peace agreement or, you know, that very high level formal negotiation that you might see on the news, uh, you also start to see the way that women are actually involved in many different levels of peace building uh, that might be at the community level, within households even, uh, between different communities or uh, tribes you might even think of, uh, as well as some of those roles at the more formal processes that we might think about that the United Nations might be involved in, for example. And if we look at Iraq, which is a case that you've been researching for several years, uh, what can you tell us about the peace process and the women's role in it? So Iraq is a really interesting case to look at when we think about building peace and building a new state, a new government, uh, because Iraq obviously is a very complicated case. You have many different actors taking part and having an interest in, uh, yes, the conflict, but also what the country looked like afterwards. And these actors are both Iraqi, they're local, they're in the region, so in the Middle East region, but also many international actors. They might be UN actors, but also, of course, the, uh, the military actors in the different countries that were involved. So it's a really complicated space to try and understand. Iraq uh, didn't have a formal peace process as we would traditionally think about it. Um, so there wasn't, you know, all of the parties coming together to negotiate the end of conflict. But rather, it was a, a political transition from the regime that was in place beforehand up to 2003 to a transitional government that was mostly run by the United States uh, and then a transitional government that Iraqi actors took part in. So that process took about uh, roughly two years or so. Uh, and you can see there that, you know, it's a very complicated process of a transitional government, people working to write the constitution, having a referendum so that everyone in Iraq could have a say about what the constitution uh, looked like or if they agreed with it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, what we have now, which is, you know, unfortunately continuing conflict and that at every stage is an opportunity for women to take part, to have a say about what is going on, what the different uh, processes, but also the different new institutions, the new government institutions, what they look like. Uh, and 
at each level you can see some women's participation but also barriers to women trying to access those spaces and those conversations. What kind of barriers or any prejudice about women's role and participation have you noticed in your research? As I'm sure some of you know, Iraq before 2003 was under a very authoritarian regime under the Saddam Hussein regime. And that regime didn't really allow for very much independent organizing political activity, including civil society activity. So after 2003, there was an opening for that, an opportunity to have these conversations in public, in relative safety, uh, which meant that people could organize, they could have meetings and discussions about what they wanted the country to look like. And women did that as women. So there were conferences for women specifically about what they wanted the government to look like, what they wanted the country to look like. And these women came from around Iraq, but also from the diaspora who had returned to Iraq to take up these opportunities. Uh, there was some support from international actors, which I think, again, allowed for these opportunities to grow somewhat. So funding and you know creating spaces for these conversations to happen. But there were also at the same time many barriers that different women had to navigate differently. Uh, so you, we could say that maybe participation was a little bit easier for women who had come back from the diaspora because they could, they already had existing conversations or relationships with international actors. They had knowledge about how to organize and how to work in that space. So that you can see a little bit of a division there. But I think also just as there's opportunity for these new progressive voices to come up, there's also opportunity for different voices who maybe didn't want that space to uh, to take up so much of the conversation. So that definitely these restrictions around uh, women's participation and different cultural norms and so on, these also developed and changed and adapted as the situation changed after 2003. I also want to say here that one very big barrier we always have to keep in mind is the issue of violence and insecurity in Iraq because if you followed the news in the last 20 years or so, that has changed a lot. And there's moments of uh, growing violence or growing insecurity. Some of that is very general. So the general population is experiencing, you know, the civil war or the rise of ISIS or different terrorist attacks around the country. But there was also really specific targeting of some women as they were gaining leadership positions. That happened immediately after 2003, if you know, some women were targeted, some maybe were facing assassination attempts, so that's severe. But also, it's been still ongoing as, as things change and women you know, challenge different cultural norms or different uh, political spaces as well and try to really challenge the, the, the power uh, and who holds it in Iraq. So that, it's, it's a dangerous job, I think, in, in many ways. And are there any individual women or civil society or any other types of organizations of uh, women that have been that we should know about for this discussion and that have been instrumental in the peace building of Iraq? Uh, there were many individual women and organizations that really came together at the beginning uh, when these processes were first starting and the. You know, the the new government and the new constitution was being put together. Um, so three that I can mention specifically that were in the uh, in the transitional government. There were three women that sat 
in that space. Aqila al Hashimi, Raja Habib al Khuzay, and Songol Shapuk. But there were also some really interesting actors that we can look at that came afterwards who really had some, you know, some important things to say about women's rights. And you can see, actually, if you look up their names, you can see some of their speeches in the, in the UN as well. So one organization I quite like to follow is the Organization of Women's Rights in Iraq, which is a very independent organization. They always really have a very feminist approach to their work. And their organizer, Yanar Mohammed, uh, gave a speech to the UN Security Council a few years ago. So you can look that up and see a video of her talking about uh, Iraqi women's rights and some of the insecurities that they face as well. So I think those are some interesting people to look up and, and learn from their work. Uh, and you can look, you know, there were some women that are in the Kurdistan, the Iraqi Kurdistan region, who are still very active politically. Uh, and those are also good to look up to. One example can be Nermin Uthman, who is uh, still in uh, a city called Suleymaniya, still working in the in the Kurdish governance as well. And she had a big role to play right after 2003 in the uh, in the transitional government too. And are there any assumptions or prejudice uh, that you have come across uh, when it comes to women's roles in the Iraqi peace process or maybe political um, process? Of course, there's always many assumptions about uh, women's participation and the roles that they might take on. And those assumptions can come from actors or, or people who are not Iraqi, so who are watching the news and trying to understand the situation in Iraq. But they can also come from Iraqi actors themselves, different people involved in the different processes I've looked at. Uh, so maybe if we think about uh, people looking into Iraq from, from the outside, I think we can see some assumptions about uh, maybe women primarily being victims or being kind of silent or not present in the different processes. And you can see that in some of the writing that tried to document or analyze what happened immediately after 2003. Uh, there's not always a big discussion of what women were doing. Um, or, you know, you have this assumption that women's rights were something that uh, different external actors brought in. So the US may be brought into Iraq, but actually that's not true. There were many women in Iraq around 2003 organizing and making demands for uh, the different things that were gained at that time. The, there's a women's quota in the parliament, for example, that was included in the constitution. And I think often people would assume that a quota would have been brought in externally. It would have been something that the international community demanded. But actually, that's not true. It was women in Iraq, diaspora and, and women who had stayed in Iraq during the 90s, who organized, had different meetings and demanded a 40% quota. And in the end, it ended up being 25%, which is still in place. So until today, you have 25% of parliamentary seats going to women. There's another assumption that I find quite strange as well, which I think persists with oh, amongst Iraqis who talk about women's participation in politics, particularly in relation to that uh, quota in parliament, which is that um, women uh, might not have the, uh, not the capacity, but the, um, the experience to, to take part in parliaments and in political you know, activities, which I find very strange because 
I don't know where the men would have gotten that experience before 2003 anyway. So actually, if you question that assumption, uh, everyone is starting on the same level. So I don't know why we have to carry that assumption that women don't have that experience. Uh, it's, a, it's a moment of learning for everybody. And I think we have to always remember that when we're asking questions about women's participation in Iraq. And um, since 2003, are there any particular actions or methods that the civil society um, has used in Iraq that um, differs from, from previous times? So as I mentioned, uh, that space for independent conversation and organizing really grew or developed after 2003. It couldn't really exist outside of Iraqi Kurdistan before that. Uh, and that helped uh, develop new forms of organizing. Some of those things looked like, you know, what we would typically see as a conference, so people coming together from different parts of the country to have discussions. Uh, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do in a post-conflict setting when you're still dealing with a very changing security situation, but we saw women do that immediately after 2003. Uh, but there are also some other things I've found really interesting in my research around uh, women's organizing in response to different uh, UN mechanisms or different uh, processes that happen at the global level. So I don't know if many of you know about the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Uh, Sweden has a very big role to play in, in making sure that that agenda you know, is supported and implemented both in Sweden and overseas. Uh, but that has also had a big role in how uh, Iraqi women's organizations, uh, you know, put together their strategies and the different language that they use around women's insecurity after conflict, particularly after um, the presence of ISIS in the north of Iraq and the different implications that that had for Iraqi women, for Yazidi women, of course, uh, but for different people who experience that, including, you know, internally displaced people in Iraq. Uh, so all of those things are, have specific implications for women. So the Women, Peace and Security agenda has been really interesting for that. Iraq was actually the first country in the Middle East region to have a national action plan to implement that. Uh, and they're currently in the process of writing their second one as well. So I hope that will be uh, implemented soon. But it's, you know, that particular space is interesting because we see uh, different Iraqi women in, in their organizations use that agenda as an opportunity to talk about um, some of the things that women are specifically facing in Iraq in, in that northern context if they've experienced displacement or uh, of course you know sexual slavery or, or other things like that. So that's something I think that's new because we're seeing the use of international frameworks to to talk about some of these things when maybe that wasn't really part of the conversation that the government was having itself. Um, you've already mentioned these international frameworks and the UN as an actor. What role does the international community have? The international community is really important in kind of facilitating, funding, creating partnerships with local uh, or national civil society actors in Iraq, women's groups in Iraq. Uh, and what that does is it makes sure that those actors have you know a budget to work with uh, a program uh, focus to work with sometimes that those actors also are supporting some really important service delivery work so really basic things like you know livelihoods or psychosocial support for people who have experienced really difficult things uh, it could be something a little bit bigger around you know supporting 
like the creating the national action plan or other other types of work that uh, can be more political. Uh, I think they're also the international community can be really helpful in connecting different people together. So sometimes, you know, if you're working in the north and another organization is working in the south, maybe you're not having as many conversations because it's very difficult to arrange these things. So the international community there can have a really good uh, role in creating spaces where those connections can be had or, you know, a, a network of, of actors working all on violence against women or something like that. So that's a really positive impact that the international community can have. Uh, we also can see sometimes, however, that relationship can look very top down, which can be really disempowering for local Iraqi civil society groups who know their situation really well, who know uh, a lot about uh, conflict, why it's happening, the different things that women are experiencing and what they need. Uh, but uh, that relationship can then create a little bit of tension where you see maybe, uh, you know, international actors coming in and thinking that they understand the situation very well or uh, not always taking that feedback into account or something like that, or having an unequal partnership, which you definitely don't want in this situation. You want this relationship to be empowering, uh, to be supportive of the work that Iraqis are already doing rather than displacing it or taking its place. Uh, so it's important, I think, to have a balance in these relationships and always be mindful of the, the power dynamics in them. How can we best understand or see women's contributions to peace building? Are there any particular ways in which female participation or uh, actions have had a greater impact or worked you know, better. Sometimes we can miss or kind of make invisible women's contributions if we look at only very high level, very formal political spaces. And that's obvious even at the global level. When you see a high level meeting with all of the world leaders, there are very few women in those rooms, right? So then we would make the assumption that uh, women don't really contribute or something like that. And of course, that's very wrong uh, and it's flawed in many different ways because not only should we be trying to support more women to access these spaces, but we can also expand the way we look at what politics is, what peace building is, what security is. And when you do that, you begin to see the different roles that women already play, but also the, the ways we can support them playing a bigger role. Uh, so what I tend to do in my own research is yes, try and understand that formal site. What is the government doing? Uh, what is the security conversation being had there? But what's happening outside of that? The more informal, the smaller scale spaces, some people might refer to that as the local space as well. And there you begin to see a much more dynamic or much more fluid kind of thing happening where women and men have to participate maybe very differently, but you see a bigger role. Uh, so that can be things like, you know, taking into account that peace building can happen in community meetings, in those smaller dynamics between different communities, uh, maybe in a camp, in a camp setting where refugees or uh, displaced people are living. It can also, you know, when you start to take into account that violence isn't just armies, but it's also that, that sort of like family violence can be a part of what conflict looks like for a lot of people. You begin to see that those things that civil society groups are doing with communities to end uh, domestic violence or violence against women 
in the home, those are a contribution to building peace and building security for a community, right? So you, I think it's really important to really expand where we look when we try to understand what politics looks like, what peace building looks like, and what conflict looks like as well. There's, you know, examples of small organizations that work in a really specific community. So they work in their local community um, and they work with parents uh, specifically and do training with parents where they have discussions with them about things like early marriage, things about uh, like the importance of education for, for girls and for young women. And that maybe doesn't seem like a, a security conversation, but actually, you know, it's helping the well-being of the community. It's helping address a security issue for women and for, for girls specifically. And to me, that seems like a really important space to think about conflict resolution or uh, mediation even, because that's the kind of person-to-person -person thing that's really important. Uh, we can also think about examples in the north of Iraq at the moment, now that um, you know this area was liberated from ISIS, and now you're having different communities return, but they're very diverse communities. So some experience conflict in very different ways, like the Yazidi community, for example. Uh, so their peace building actually is, again, very personal because you're having a small religious community living in close proximity to a very different community, and their uh, those relationships are actually where conflict resolution needs to happen and where a lot of organizations are doing their work. So when we, you know, shift our lens to that scale, we can see relationships between families, women's roles within the family, within a community actually being a really important space. And there we can see a huge contribution that women make to peace building, as well as all of the other spaces that we can think about too. So not only do we have to look at all the different levels from the international global level down to the local or family level, but we also have to look at short-term and long-term uh, impacts. Exactly, yes, that's a very good way of putting it. It's, uh, it's short-term, it's the kind of day-to-day -day as well, so asking questions about how do people exist within their household, how do they navigate a city in a post-conflict space, those are all really important spaces where we think about not only women's participation, but also how conflict impacts men and women, boys and girls, you know, different gendered people differently. Uh, so those are important questions to have. And also the final thing I think I want to say is there's a very important uh, quote by a feminist theorist, Cynthia Enloe, who says the personal is political is international. And that's a very important way of thinking about women's contributions. When we look at the smaller scale, as well as the very big scale, we can see the full spectrum of women's contributions and participation. And if we look at today, what role do women play in shaping the political agenda of today? So today, of course, as with many countries around the world, Iraq is dealing with, again, a very complicated uh, security situation, but of course, all the health situation, and these are very connected too. Uh, but I want to mention here uh, a more recent development that we've seen in some protest movements. So a lot of people have paid a lot of attention to the Arab Spring that happened in Egypt and Tunisia and in other countries about 10 years ago. But Iraq uh, also experienced a very big protest movement that began in 2019 and kind of continued over the last uh, year and a half or so. So in that, this is a much younger generation. So you can see a generational 
shift and the civil society actors and the women's participation that happened right after 2003 and the sorts of voices that we're hearing from younger women today. So the concerns look a little bit different and the organizing, the, the kind of strategies look a little bit different as well. So just to give some context, that uh, that protest movement really started initially as a uh, an issue around accessing jobs, accessing basic services. So this is poorer people who are very angry at the situation in Iraq where, you know, things like electricity and clean water were becoming really difficult for people to access, which is crazy when we think about the oil wealth that is present in that country, right? Uh, so what began is that uh, and then was met with a lot of violence from the state and from different militia groups then really began to grow as a much larger protest movement. And if you look online or Google the 2019 October protests in Iraq, you'll be able to see some really amazing images of different uh, protest camps around the country where lots of people, mostly young people, were coming together, uh, you know, having really interesting, intense conversations about uh, what they want their country to look like. They used a slogan uh, that says, so we want a country, we want a homeland, which is a very basic demand. We want a functioning country where we can live our lives and, you know, go to university and have jobs and just live peacefully. Uh, so women in that particular protest movement had a quite special role. But what we can say is they didn't quite organize as a women's platform uh, like they might have in the past, but they were kind of part and parcel of the, the protest movement overall. So they were in the kind of day-to-day -day of it. Um, they played many roles as protesters at the front line, but also, you know, supporting roles as medics or um, cooks or organizers, artists, all of the roles that protesters played. Uh, but very uh, a very special thing that happened is um, one of the religious clerics in the country made a statement about the fact that men and women were kind of mixing a lot in these camps and that he didn't think that that was a very good thing. So in response to that, women organized a specific women's march in that protest where they uh, were really showing that actually, no, we're part of the country, we're part of the future of this country, so we have just as much right to be here as anyone else. Uh, so I think what we see there is kind of a new generation of women activists, young women taking part in these protests, having a different voice to the older generation, uh, and maybe some of the failures of the political system that has been in place since 2003. And this is an ongoing thing. So, of course, COVID has really dampened the situation with that, as well as the violence that a lot of the protesters met. So some were very specifically targeted in terms of violence there. But I think it's, it's a, a developing thing as this conversation goes on and and younger women and younger men are kind of renegotiating what uh, politics looks like, what civil society looks like, and I hope what Iraq looks like in the future too. Do you think that this is a good way to complement what has already been done by the civil society? Uh, or is it because the younger women were fed up of not seeing enough results? Or um, do you see any sort of reason why the ways that the women's participation has been promoted, has changed. What's important to think about with these protests, with women's participation, but also with young men's participation, is they're responding to a country that really has not uh, supported them or provided for them in the last 18 or so years. 
What it also responded to very importantly was the sectarianism and the division that occurred in Iraq and that has kind of taken hold of Iraqi politics. So a lot of the slogans that we saw in these protests were actually about Iraqis coming together, having a kind of, not a singular identity, but having that be more front and center than the different uh, sectarian identities that also exist. Um, you know, this idea of different sectarian divisions in Iraq, uh, there's an idea that it has existed forever, but actually like, people lived in relative harmony or not always, but, uh, you know, people could go coexist. People could enter, you know, have families that were very mixed for a long time. This this very hardened division amongst different community groups is quite a new thing in the last 20 years or so. So I think these protests were really pushing back against that and against a government that wasn't providing what it should. You know, a government should be supporting the safety of its citizens, should be uh you know, opening the road for people to take up opportunities to just live normal lives. Um, you know, if you look at the camp photos, it's very simple things around people like having conversations, uh, enjoying public space, uh, a lot of committees like cleaning the squares and decorating them and creating little spaces where people could watch films. Like there's very basic demands of the government that it just wasn't meeting. So women, I think when they were taking part in these protests, uh, were asking for the same things, really. I don't know if it was so much about making uh, women-specific demands, but about very general demands for wanting uh, a country that served them, that uh, was protecting them and their interests, and also uh, that was ensuring their safety, which, which wasn't really happening. When having researched women's role and what role women have played in peacebuilding of Iraq, are there any other messages that you want us to um, to take from this discussion, from your research, from years of studying this? Uh, do you have any optimism or um, what is your take on, on the future of women's role in peace building? Um, to me, I think when you research women's civil society, women's advocacy, the different efforts that uh, different women try to you know, have an influence on what's going on. I think to me, there's an inherent hopefulness about that, right? Because people wouldn't try to change a situation if they didn't have hope that that situation could be changed. So I always try and remember that because I think when you look or study at a conflict context in Iraq, especially, there's been so many decades of a lot of difficulty, a lot of violence, uh, not just after 2003, but before it, of course. And so to me, when people are constantly trying to challenge that situation, make it safer, uh, make it more, you know, protect, uh, a protective space of human rights, of women's rights, uh, that is hopeful. And so I, I try and always keep that in mind, even when I'm looking at things like violence or insecurity or, or different conflict. Uh, I think what also gives me hope in newer forms of organizing is that we see women be really dynamic in the different things that they do. So uh, there might be a specific situation in a part of Iraq where um, a women's group or a network of women's groups will uh, 
try their best to really like uh, use different language at the local level, at the international level, to articulate that problem, to really put it on the table and to try and work the different actors to make sure that that's being addressed. And to me, that's a really important contribution that women's groups are making. Um, what I think is a message that I think a lot of people need to remember with the Iraqi context too, is how diverse and how different the different parts of Iraq are. So when uh, the international community, who I speak to a lot in, in the course of my research, come into Iraq and try and work with local actors, I hope that people are really mindful of the different needs that exist. So at the moment, there's a lot of focus on the northern parts of Iraq, of course, uh, and that's, that's quite right because that situation is very difficult for the people in that region. Um, but there's also different needs in other parts. In the south, there's you know, a different dynamic, a different sort of security context that women have to navigate, uh, which can be difficult in a different way, but just as an important way as well. So I think when people are coming into the country and trying to talk to women and understand the situation is to always remember that context is really important and that uh, it's important to get a picture of what's going on overall rather than just in a specific location. Um, but always, of course, to, to talk to people and try and understand what their needs are, because I think that's always the most important thing when you're coming in and, and trying to, to do your best to support uh, what local actors are already doing to make the situation better for themselves. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for sharing your knowledge and your research with us. Of course. <laughs>